You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The problem with today's politics is that it's discussed in a vacuum. Nobody brings up the history that led to today's current events. Well, I do. In my podcast, I take the politics of today and smash them and bash them with yesterday's history. Well, the politics comes out different. You come out with a better understanding of today's current events. I'm Bruce Carlson. Listen to me as history beats up on politics. If you want to win a political argument in America, just quote Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's been presented as a stalwart Republican. He's been presented also as a compassionate liberal, social progressive. Abraham Lincoln's being increasingly presented as a neoconservative who would support most of President Bush's extraordinary steps regarding the war on terror. It seems like everyone is throwing old Honest Abe around. And in today's podcast, we'll get to as close as we can where Abraham Lincoln was politically and the light that it shines on today's politics, particularly involving the modern Republican Party. Abraham Lincoln made a lot of great speeches. We think of the first inaugural, you know, Better Angels of Our Nature. We think of the Gettysburg Address four score and seven years ago. And we think of his second inaugural, With Malice Towards None. His 1864 State of the Union is not one of those great speeches. First of all, it's not a speech at all. It's a written report. The way that presidents would deliver their State of the Union between Washington and Woodrow Wilson was written, sent to the Congress. But it still was a document crafted by Lincoln, and it represents his desires and his visions of America in December of 1864. What's important to note about that is that at this point, the Civil War was in its last throes. Sherman had invaded and secured Atlanta in September 1864, driving a stake through the heart of the Confederacy. At this point, Abraham Lincoln had also been re-elected. And this was a huge morale boost for the Union effort because prior to that it wasn't entirely clear that everyone in the Union supported the Civil War, which is a kind of a fact that's been lost to history a bit and is probably the subject of another podcast. The reason I think the State of the Union of 1864 is so interesting is that if you're looking for a vision of the true President Lincoln, in other words, not the historical figure that's really in the history books, dominated, rightly, by the Civil War and slavery. But what type of president he was and was looking to be besides the Civil War? This documents the place to look. It's not an eloquent speech, and therefore I'm going to spare you the torture of me reading it in its entirety to you, but I just want to point out some points. There's little interesting facts like the you know, Treasury of the United States amounting to $1.7 billion. And at this point in 1864, there still were 12 Revolutionary War soldiers still receiving pension. 
He references that each year the Civil War goes on, it's going to cost about $500 million. Would that wars cost that little today? Besides those little interesting tidbits, he says, It's of noteworthy interest that the steady expansion of population, improvement, and governmental institutions over the new and unoccupied portions of our country have scarcely been checked by a great civil war. The image people have from the history they're taught is that the whole United States was dominated by the Civil War and nothing else was going on. But as Lincoln is pointing out, it's not true. The West is being settled. And this is something that greatly excites Lincoln. He's celebrating the fact that banks have moved from state banks largely to federal U.S. government banks. Very soon there will be in the United States no banks of issue not authorized by Congress and no banknote circulation not secured by the government. An earnest and cordial friendship continues to exist between Peru and Spain and such efforts were in my power have been used to remove misunderstanding and avert a threatened war between these countries. Lincoln is demonstrating how he's actually operated on the world theater, probably through his Secretary of State Seward. He talks about the rebellion, which has so long been flagrant in China. He talks about the peculiar situation of Japan. The action of that empire in performing treaty stipulations is inconstant and capricious. He's having some problems with Japan. Working on treaties with, with England. He asks the Congress to furnish the Republic of Liberia. This is an African nation made of American slaves. It wasn't created by Lincoln. It wasn't even created in Lincoln's time. It goes back to the 1840s. But Lincoln was the president that gave this country official diplomatic recognition. And he asks for the Congress to furnish the Republic a gunboat at moderate cost to be reimbursed to the United States by installments. He talks about how the government has entered good and cordial relations with Venezuela and Colombia. He's celebrating improvements in communications. There is to be a telegraph line that will go through Europe over into Russia, through Siberia, and come to America that way. And at the same time, in 1864, there's an attempt to build a telegraph under the Atlantic Ocean and to England. This is a way of in, in making the United States a powerful nation that can communicate with other great powers in the world. Now, it would turn out the, the Siberian route would not be successful, and the one under the Atlantic Ocean would be successful in just, in just a few years. Much yet remains to be done to provide for the proper government of the Indians in other parts of the country, to render it secure for the advancing settler, and to provide for the welfare of the Indian. You know, essentially, we have to deal with the Indians so that we can settle more of the West. And lastly, the great enterprise of connecting the Atlantic with the Pacific states by railways has been entered upon with a vigor that gives assurance of success. To summarize... In this speech, Lincoln is excited about a national banking system, improvements in telegraph communications, the increasing role of the United States as a world power, the population and settlement of areas in the West, and lastly, the development of a transcontinental American railroad. Abraham Lincoln, now re-elected, the Civil War is about to end. It's going back into the mode of the politician sort of saying, hey, I fulfilled my, my obligations that I pledged despite this horrible event. Here's the direction we're going as Republicans. 
And for that, we'll go back to another boring document, and that is the Republican Party platform of 1860. When people think of the early Republican Party, the way history is taught, it's, it's thought of as merely an anti-slavery party. And that, I think, has been critical to the current understanding of Abraham Lincoln. Now, it is true when the party ran the first presidential candidate, James Fremont, in 1856, it was very much a free soil, a, a anti-slavery, abolitionist party. But by 1860, four years later, they realized it would have to be more broad message to get support. And the people behind the Republican Party of 1860 very clearly were railroad barons, were northern manufacturers, they were bankers, people with business interests. So while their platform did have several planks regarding ending slavery, at least in the new states of the West, they were also just as adamant in their, in their platform plank about preserving a high tariff. Now, this is, this is critical and important because what is a tariff? A tariff is a tax on import. And what one has to remember, you know, when you, when you listen to the history of politics of the 1800s, all, that's almost all you hear, tariff, tariff, tariff. And why is that? Because at that time, and until the income tax would come into play under Woodrow Wilson, tariff was the only form of revenue for the federal government, or at least one of the few forms. It was the most of the money came from tariffs. So you either could raise it or lower it. That was it. That was federal politics, guys, at least in, in regarding taxation. In any case, they were a high-tariff party. Now, if you're a northerner and you're, you have factories and you're making stuff here that you want to sell to the South and other parts of America, high tariffs, fine. It protects you. If you're in the South and you're importing a lot of your goods, a tariff kills you. And while the tariff would actually be increased in 1859 uh, and increased greatly before Lincoln came into office, he, of course, made every effort to enforce and preserve that tariff. And the whole Civil War, in a way, was a battle over tariffs because, let's face it, if the South had been successful seceding from the Union, not only would they have been able to keep their slavery policy but they also would not have had to pay the tariff. And it's not likely that among the Confederacy there would have been a very high tariff policy because a lot of their goods came from imports. There's also an interesting pro-immigration platform in their plank. Republicans were very interested in immigration. It was seen that they needed workers to work in these new industrial factories, not really new at that time, but these industrial factories, and they wanted to speed up the process of immigration and make sure that whether you were a citizen by birth or whether you moved here and became a citizen, Republicans of 1860 wanted you to be exactly the same. But it is Plank 16, the last and final plank, which I find most interesting. It has absolutely nothing to do about slavery. It calls for the creation and the establishment of transcontinental railroad with the support of the federal government. So, here you have it. It is true that it's a strong anti-slavery abolitionist party. You also have a party that wants to increase federal government revenue by raising the tariffs and to use some of that money to finance a railroad across the United States. It is an expansionist party. It's a manifest destiny party.
Lincoln said about the railroad that a railroad to the Pacific Ocean is imperatively demanded by the interest of the whole country. The federal government ought to render immediate and efficient aid in its construction. The simple fact of the matter is the Republican Party in 1860 and Abraham Lincoln as its candidate was a railroad party. Lincoln had a long history as a railroad lawyer. He represented the railroad on many occasions. It was his largest paying legal account. There's little doubt. Lincoln and the Republican Party at the time were pro-business, pro-corporate party as it existed at the time. Now, that can be seen as negative, and there's books like The Real Lincoln that are out there, which is showing how Lincoln was nothing but, you know, kind of a stooge for the businesses and corporations. Or it can be seen in the light that Lincoln presented it in, which is, hey, railroad's good for the country. And the argument goes like this. Look, could you imagine the United States growing the way it did without a railroad system? Or if the individual states had to build railroads and it wasn't overseen by the federal government? There's no way we'd have 50 states, one nation, if that took place. On the other hand, in the building of the railroad, there were some well-documented instances of people making an awful lot of money on that project. And the railroads were definitely kind of the Halliburtons and the Enrons of their day. And even the anti-slavery abolitionist part of Lincoln and the Republican Party of the 1860s reflects their view of manifest destiny almost more than anything else. Uh, The platform of the Republican Party of 1860 and Lincoln's own stated positions only affected slavery in the new states that were forming out of the western territories like Kansas and Nebraska. Even at the time of Lincoln's inaugural, as one state had seceded, South Carolina, but there were still many other states that could possibly be held at that time, Lincoln gave his support to a constitutional amendment that was proposed saying that it would be illegal for the federal government to ever interfere with slavery in the southern states. So it's okay in the old states and not okay in the new ones. That was Lincoln and the Republican Party's 1860 position. It's also very well documented that Lincoln's approach to abolition of slavery, even after the southern states had rebelled, was very slow, very incremental. It is true that in 1862 he issued his initial Emancipation Proclamation, which outlawed slavery in the southern states, of course over which the federal government had no control, but permitted it in the border states like Kentucky and Tennessee and Maryland where it it was occurring. Lincoln was also a supporter of taking slaves and freed men and transporting them to Liberia, to the African nation that was founded. And he wanted to pay slave owners for their slaves, pay for their freedom and raise money for that, desperately attempting a kind of third-way solution. So Lincoln was no radical on slavery. But when the time came and it was a decision was needed in 1863 of course he issues the Emancipation Proclamation and while it seems kind of middle road at the time it was still a radical step for American politics in 1863. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards Tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.
So Lincoln's often been branded kind of as a progressive or social liberal, and there's that old famous saying that, you know, if Jefferson and Lincoln could see their parties today, uh, Jefferson, seeing the Democratic Party, would start a revolution and Lincoln would secede. Implicit in that little quip is that the Republican Party has changed an awful lot from where Lincoln the liberal was. And really looking at the historical record, it's not entirely true. Lincoln was really a, a, a centrist politician, and the Republican Party at the time is not all that different from the Republican Party today. It's a very pro-business, pro-growth party. But was Abraham Lincoln a neocon? And I, I guess it's first, to answer that question, it's necessary to really define what we're talking about when we say a neocon. And to simplify things, you know, a neoconservative or neocon is someone who believes in American expansionism, who believes in America, the use of American power around the world. And kind of the popular expansion of the term really applies to all of the policies in the current Bush administration, including a lot of the policies uh, re involving the, the Guantanamo Bay and the prisoners there, and uh, using military tribunals to try some of these uh, prisoners, and the Patriot Act, etc. So using that very broad uh, definition of what a neocon or neoconservative is, you know, let's, let's see where Lincoln fits in. And I'll deal with the first part first. Was Lincoln an expansionist? Did he believe in the use of American power in the world? Here we have kind of a mixed message. It is very clear that Lincoln was not afraid to use military force, obviously, immediately upon uh, coming to office, he immediately called for 75,000 troops from the states, and that would be the largest uh, call for volunteers in American history to that time. He was absolutely intolerant of the behavior of the states that called themselves the Confederacy, would refuse to use that term, called them insurrectionists, and he was seeking to immediately use federal force to seize back the lands and armories that they had taken. We've also seen that Lincoln was a great supporter, fulfillment of manifest destiny and population of the West. But I'm not so sure that this represents a desire for expansion on Lincoln's part, because most of these territories were already acquired. In fact, the way the United States looks now, with some small exceptions was the way it looked in 1860. I mean, some areas would be purchased. So one could argue that Lincoln was really just looking for these areas to be settled, populated, and put to good use for the resources of the nation. So would Lincoln support the use of American force to acquire more territory or control the rest of the world? Lincoln, as a congressman in his early years, had opposed the Mexican War, which he saw as a blatant attempt to seize land from Mexico. A quote from Lincoln reveals that he may not have been so keen on preemptive strikes and the use of American force without checks and balances. Allow the president to invade a neighboring nation whenever he shall deem it necessary to repel an invasion, and you allow him to make war at pleasure. If today he should choose to say he thinks it is necessary to invade Canada to prevent the Canadians from invading us, how would you stop him? You may say to him, I see no probability of the Canadians invading us. But he will say to you, be silent. I see it if you don't. Now, a quote like that shows Lincoln as being very careful. While he is not afraid to use 
force, being very careful in how it is used and avoiding foreign entanglements. We also have the famous example of Secretary of State Seward providing him with an idea of perhaps starting a war with England or France so that the North and South will be united against this foreign enemy. And, of course, Lincoln is not very keen on the idea, and he sends it back to Seward and says, one war at a time. So while Lincoln was excited about the expansion of the American West and its settlement and fulfillment, and while he wasn't afraid to use American force, and while he definitely participated in world affairs, and one can be certain that he would have participated in world affairs even more had he lived into his second term, it's not clear at all to me that Lincoln was out to use American firepower to acquire more territory, or that was even a, a, a useful policy goal at the time. Now, the second half of the question, was Abraham Lincoln a neoconservative, has to do with, you know, would he tolerate some of the policies that we're seeing today in terms of Bush, Guantanamo Bay, and the, you know, Patriot Act and things like that. Conservative columnist Michelle Malkin points out an argument made by many people of the conservative persuasion that historically civil rights had often yielded to security in times of crisis. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus, which enabled him to detain thousands of rebels and subversives without access to judges. And the facts of that are certainly true. During the Civil War, Lincoln needed to secure Maryland, which was surrounding the federal capital and was the link between New York and Pennsylvania, where troops were coming from, and the federal capital, which is at Washington. He detained thousands of people. In many cases, they shut down opposition presses. In addition, some of the steps he took just in raising an army and just in ordering a blockade of the southern states, those were all actions that constitutionally, at least in the view of the time, were illegal for the president to do. And not everyone was pleased with his actions. In the Merriman case in 1861, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger B. Taney, denounced the notion of arbitrary military arrest and the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, defended civil liberties, and pointed out that only Congress had the right to suspend habeas corpus. Even Taney's decision, however, admits that he could do nothing to enforce the ruling in the face of a military force too strong for me to overcome. However, it's sort of easy to defend Lincoln's actions at the time. More than a third of the nation had left the nation. It wasn't a matter of a threat of invasion or even a threat of... Uh, of, of, of terrorism, of an attack that could come, it was a group of people within the country who had simply left. And not only left, but taken over federal armories, federal property, and asserted that they were no longer part of the nation. And as we discussed earlier, the Confederacy, the part of the Union that left, represented a lot of the revenue-generating part of the United States. It is also the case that Lincoln after taking the actions, informed Congress and got the approval of Congress for the suspension of writ of habeas corpus and for his actions regarding raising an army and regarding the naval blockade. So even though he had done it before, without their permission, he went retroactively and sought approval from the Congress. So if we're looking to draw parallels, for instance, with things like the, the wiretapping that's going on in the current administration, or the... Uh 
Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Watching of Americans' financial transactions abroad, those are instances where, at least as they're reported in the news, Congress was unaware of the administration's action. And so they really differ from the Lincoln example. Lincoln had a radical Republican Congress. Remember, the South had seceded, so they all left their congressional and Senate seats. And so the pro-Southern faction of the, the U.S. was was gone to a certain extent. The radical Republicans dominated Congress. They were going to support everything Lincoln did and more. On the other hand, there are some references that while Lincoln informed the Congress of the actions he was taking, specific information on all of the arrests were not always forthcoming from his generals and from his administration. And the case of Congressman Clement Bellendingham is a Democrat from Ohio who opposed the Lincoln administration is not a good one. Um, Vallandigham was appalled and outraged at Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus and the arrests of editors of Democratic newspapers in Ohio. He made a speech on the floor of the House of Representatives in which he condemned the Lincoln administration's persistent infractions of the Constitution and its high-minded usurpations of power, which were designed as a deliberate conspiracy to overthrow the present form of federal Republican government and to establish a strong centralized government instead. When Vallandigham repeated that speech to his constituents in Ohio, he was arrested and he was actually treated as a traitor and delivered over to the Confederacy in Tennessee. Well, the Confederacy didn't really want him. And then he was sent up to Canada. He later did return after the war. Not a very good example of Lincoln uh, following Democratic principles. And it does indeed appear that, like all times in history when power is unchecked, that Lincoln, the radical Republicans, and his generals collectively went too far. And definitely a line was crossed from locking up true rebels and people who were really trying to incite war and people who were simply political dissidents and members of the opposition Northern Democratic Party. And so when current politicians use Lincoln as an example, they should probably remember that 
celebrating this part of Lincoln is not really celebrating the best part of Lincoln anymore that we don't remember FDR fondly by his relocation of the Japanese Americans during World War II. And in fact, FDR would use Lincoln's example to justify his actions. Even Nixon, in his 1977 interview after his presidency with David Frost, used the Lincoln example to justify some of his actions, saying the country was just as divided over Vietnam as they were in the 1860s between North and South, something that I would find ludicrous. And here one might bring up September 11th and ask, wasn't that a crisis that was equal to the Civil War? And while September 11th was a horrible and unprecedented attack, I think in terms of economic and societal impact in the United States, there's no comparison to the Civil War, to losing one-third of your country, setting brother against brother, and having an area of your country just completely out of federal control and no longer collecting revenue. So I think the correct interpretation here is... An acknowledgement that Lincoln was in a situation that really no American president has faced. An acknowledgement also that in the end, although it might have started with good intentions, it went too far. And an acknowledgement that Lincoln's actions are not really a good example for the future. Lincoln's action regarding uh, declaring a war without the consent of Congress, raising the troops, and the blockade were supported by the United States Supreme Court in the prize decision of 1863, but on the issue of Lincoln's suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and his, his jailing of thousands of political opponents, the issue was decided by the Supreme Court after Lincoln's death in 1866 in the Milligan case the Supreme Court decided that the suspension of habeas corpus could be lawful, but only in the areas where courts, regular courts, were not operating. Therefore, Lincoln, although this decision was made after his death and after the war, Lincoln did not follow the law. And what Lincoln did was unconstitutional. So if you were in a a state that the the Union Army had just captured and they needed to do military tribunals and suspend habeas corpus there, the court said that could be done. But if it's in the part of the United States where courts are still operating, the Constitution did not permit it, and Lincoln acted unconstitutionally. So while many people use Lincoln's action to defend actions today, we also have to note that although it was after the fact, Not all of Lincoln's actions were approved by the Supreme Court. So was Abraham Lincoln a liberal? Probably not. Was Abraham Lincoln a neocon? Probably not either. Abraham Lincoln really seems to fit as a moderate pro-growth, pro-rights. Using extraordinary force in an extraordinary situation, but being careful about its use in other situations. The history behind Lincoln beats up on the political references of Lincoln today. I'm Bruce Carlson. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.